You see, the more economically independent a man is, the easier it is for him to say to government, get out of my business. My business isn't your business. I have a roof over my head. I've, I've made what I've made by myself. This isn't your doing, and so I don't need your help. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, today on the program, we have someone who is uh, somewhat unique, a Christian libertarian economist, and he's an Albertan. Uh, so this should be a very, very interesting conversation uh, with a person who has actually started his own podcast and has been very active uh, in the public in educating the public about some of the, the threats, domestic and international, to our sovereignty and our prosperity. And our overall well-being as as humans uh, in this space and time in history, uh, and so we're looking forward to having a conversation with him. Uh, his name is Tanner Knighty. Uh, before we introduce him properly, uh, as we always do, we're going to go to the aphorisms board, and uh, some of these have been chosen in his honor. The first one is from um, a very famous uh, evangelist, American evangelist, um, the late great. Billy Graham, and I, I, I'm quoting him because I've heard Tanner speak, and he has sort of a bit of the Billy Graham in him. I think I've mentioned this to him. So the quote from Billy Graham is, is this, um, the greatest need in the world is the transformation of human nature. We need a new heart that will not have lust and greed and hate in it. We need a heart filled with love and peace and joy, and that is why Jesus came into the world. The second one is from an economist. Um, uh, the late uh, Milton Friedman, former Nobel Prize winner, I believe 1976, and he was a he was definitely a libertarian, uh, so somewhat of the same uh, ilk as our guest. And uh, Dr. Milton Friedman said many things, but he was quoted uh, famously as saying this: "The great virtue of a free market system is that it does not care what color people are." does not care what their religion is. It only cares whether they can produce something you want to buy. It is the most effective system we have discovered to enable people who hate one another to deal with one another and help one another. The next one is from uh, a famous Christian philosopher uh, named uh, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote that to love means loving the unlovable, to forgive means pardoning the unpardonable, faith means believing the unbelievable, Hope means hoping when everything seems hopeless. And finally, from uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. So who do we have on the show today? Well, Tanner Knighty. Uh, Tanner is um, a speaker. Uh, he is um, an industrial organization economist and a lay theologian. He's the author of a book called True Christianity, a book that's featured on our reading list today. He's going to tell us about a new book he's working on, and I'm excited to hear about that. And um, But True Christianity, he describes as an introductory treatise on the fundamentals of his Christian faith, and he regularly comments on political, ethical, religious, and economic issues that are in vogue. 
Um, and I'm going to start off with a quotation from him. He says, together, we're fighting to return the society to objective morals, supremacy of scripture, and leadership of Christ. That sounds awfully good. Um, there's a bit of a bio that he's drafted. I want to read this. He says, my name is Tanner Knighty. I was raised west of Lloydminster, Alberta. I've been a resident of our magnificent province all my life. Across my studies at the University of Calgary, I was disciplined in economics. There, I constructed principles on the research of noted economists like James Buchanan, Ronald Coase, Oliver Williamson, and Jeffrey Church, and I completed my degree in economics with a concentration in industrial organization. He says, of course, one needn't be an economist to diagnose our markets as exceedingly sick, intrusive federal and provincial bureaucracies meddle in our economy and conspire to, fill, to facilitate our ruin. And he says, let me be striking. Alberta is under economic attack. Prime Minister claims to fight for us, yet simultaneously appoints a radical environmentalist vehemently opposed to our energy industry to the position of Minister for Environment and Climate Change. For another example, Parliament promises fairness and freedom, provides no compensation the equalization program we've been forced to Atlas since 1965. So, Tanner, with that introduction, welcome to Grey Matter. It's great to have you on the program. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So let's jump right into it. Uh, I'm very, very interested to know your thoughts on Justin Transition, as it's called, or Just ah, Transition. Yes. Um, now, I, I know you have, I expect you have many thoughts about this, but I'm, I'm particularly interested to know um, why you think this is happening and what it could mean for our province and for our country. Right. Well, <laughs> my guess is you probably already know my thoughts on the matter of just transition, as I think, as I think most other Albertans do. And actually, from what I can tell on social media and just conversing with individuals across the province and country, I would argue the vast majority of individuals uh, see this just transition policy the same way we do, which is destructive and dangerous and has the potential, no, has the guarantee to dramatically reduce the quality of life, both in our province and in the nation as a whole. So you have this government in Ottawa that has uh, signed on or, or pledged allegiance to this just transition that's been discussed in however many massive, you know, global organizations. And when you read what the, what the plans and the ideals of the just transition policy are, as I know you have, and I'm sure your listeners have, you see just how um, dramatically different it would make life in Canada in a bad way. We have all of the blessings that we have today as a consequence of oil and gas, or many of the blessings we have today. You and I can talk on, on, uh, online like this because of oil and gas. We have lights in our homes because of oil and gas. We have heat when it's minus 40 out because of oil and gas. We have clothes that are nice and, and a variety because of oil and gas. We have all of these blessings as a consequence of oil and gas and our production and our harvest of oil and gas. And then you read the just transition policy. And when you see that they want to take that away, and that is the purpose of that policy, you begin to realize just how um, dangerous it is for our quality and way of life. Okay, so then what's the purpose of that? Why would a government who claims to serve its own people try to engage and pursue that sort of 
um, policy when it's so mm -hmm. clearly destructive? What's the purpose? Well, so one hypothesis I have, which I think is proving to be true based on the actions of our government, is that, okay, if you um, force a society into a position where they're desperate and they need help and life isn't what it was and um, their wealth has dramatically decreased, etc., what you do is you increase their dependency on something like the federal government. You mm. see, the more economically independent a man is, the easier it is for him to say to government, get out of my business. My business mm. isn't your business. I have a roof over my head. I've, I've made what I've made by myself. This isn't your doing. And so I don't need your help. I don't need your checks. I don't need your, um, you know, uh, dependency. I don't, I don't need to be dependent on you. And as such, I can freely criticize you for what you are. If, on the other hand, a man is dependent on the federal government or any government for that matter, it makes it so much more difficult for him to freely articulate his thoughts, his true thoughts about what he thinks regarding the state of his situation and the situation of the country. He might be or is scared that if he criticizes the government in a specific way, then maybe he'll lose a check or maybe he'll lose some form of income that otherwise he would have had. Right. You don't right. bite the hand that feeds you. And so my the my hypothesis is that by pursuing these sorts of ideals, it's meant to bring Canadians and Albertans and other provinces under greater dependency and direction of the federal government to increase the overall power of the federal government over the nation. That's that's a fascinating uh, take on a purely sort of economic level, just taking that a little bit deeper. Uh, I was recently reading a book by uh, Alex Epstein mm -hmm. called Fossil Future. I, I know you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that he talks about in his book is the the complete, the obliviousness of the people who are pushing net zero mm. carbon uh, to all of the benefits of fossil fuels that you've talked about, mm -hmm. over 6,000 products that have essentially improved every aspect of human life over the past 200 years. Um, but he makes a point there about this policy being fundamentally anti-human, mm -hmm. that it's not only going to um, you know, decrease or, or diminish uh, our ability to enjoy our lives, it's actually going to kill lives. It's gonna cost lives and millions of them. And uh, do you think that there is a, uh, a spiritual aspect to this? In other words, that this this anti-human agenda that it goes it goes deeper than economics. Oh, um, oh, yes, absolutely. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because yes. I know oh, obviously yeah. everything that you do and you talk about is is informed by your Christian faith and your beliefs. Right. So I'd be interested to know, sort of going a little bit deeper than the the economics, and to hear from you on this uh, on this point. Right. Oh, I would totally agree that this is um, a battle which is fundamentally spiritual, and it goes much deeper than economics. One of the failures of economists <laughs> is, that, is that we tend to focus just on the economics and hold economics as um, the standard, the ideal, but it's really not. It's important, but there are things more foundational than economics itself, and that includes morals and worship and so on. So when I look at these politicians and eco-radicals pursuing these policies, even though as I think Epstein's right, it it will, it is anti-human and it will produce human suffering and death to a 
demonstrable level. They're doing so because they worship climate change. They worship or they uh, they worship um, the battle against climate change. They worship the climate itself. But when you look at how they've been reared, it actually makes it's really not surprising at all that they do so. You scrutinize government. You look at our politicians in government in at any level. You look at the activists lobbying government. You look at individuals involved with government. And what you see is that a, a good deal of them are progressives. Right? They worship this religion of progressivism. And the further you think about it, the further you realize that it really makes sense then that they would worship climate change because they're progressives. The thing about climate change is that the climate's always changing. It's a changeless fact that the climate changes. And so what it allows the progressive to do is pursue that objective, that ideal, stopping climate change forever, even though they know that they'll never achieve their objective because the climate will never stop changing. They can spew these abstract thoughts and ideals and make it seem like they're pursuing a goal, something concrete, but really they're not, right? Because you know and I know that the progressive can never really achieve anything at all. Because mm -hmm. if he does, suppose he achieves his objective, then he stops progressing and mm -hmm. his entire ideology cannibalizes itself. So suppose I sponsored a marathon in the name of progressivism. I do so. And what, would me what it would mean is that you would have to continually move the finish line around the racetrack. You would never mm -hmm. know where it is because it can never be in one fixed spot because you always have to be changing your ideals as the progressives do today. But mm -hmm. even if you knew where the finish line was going to be, if you had progressive runners, they would never cross the finish line. At right at the moment that they were about to, they would crash, not into the line, but into a paradox. Because if they did cross the line, the race would be over and they would have completed their goal or they would complete their goal and they would cease to progress towards the finish line. Their entire mm -hmm. ideal or objective dies. Their entire worship of progressivism itself is defeated. And so what they have to do is they have to run a race forever without ever crossing the finish line. It's the exact same thing with climate change. Progressive politicians pursue stopping climate change because you can do it forever without ever actually stopping climate change and reaching your objective, your ideal that you preach to the society. And they know that, of course, the politicians know they never can um, mm -hmm. achieve their ideal because if they do, of course, it means that all of their restrictions and um, power grabs are immediately rendered obsolete and unjustified. Mm -hmm. And so that 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 tool they use climate change to exercise power over the society is lost and so instead they just pursue this ideal forever well it's it's encouraging to know that progressivism fails in the long run mm, yes uh, but yes let's talk about some of the ways this manifests itself um you talked about on your uh, on your podcast and i, I want to get it deeper into that in a few minutes but um let's talk about this 15 minute city Mm. Uh, and how it fits into this picture. Now, there's talk of this being imposed in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. There seems to be some strong resistance, but what is this 15-minute city all about? We've been hearing that this is uh, coming to London. There's people in England who are very much in favor of this. But what, why the 15-minute city? How does it fit within the whole sort of uh, anti-human plan of, 
of the World Economic Forum and the people who want to control every aspect of our lives. Right, right. Well, when you research the 15-minute city ideal, one of the first things you'll notice is that Paris, who is um, operated by a supreme socialist, is one of the major, most prominent champions of the 15-minute city in the world. Now, no one really disagrees rightfully so, that that cities aren't already 15-minute cities, in effect. You know, I don't live in a big city, but if I did, I know I have family who lives there and so on. You can, for the most part, travel 15 or 20 minutes and get to where you need to go for your amenities or your necessities. No one really argues that. Part of the reason you move to a city is for convenience, right? Part of the reason you move to um, a new place is well, for a variety of reasons, but because you're close to a school, you're close to your work, you're close to a grocery store, you're close to all of these amenities. So you don't have to waste time driving, say, 45 minutes to go to a grocery store. Right. Fine. Fair enough. But that isn't the point, right? That's not our contention with the 15 uh, minute cities. Our contention is that if politicians, and of course, they are structuring their cities now also to actually create these true 15-minute cities. But at any rate, if our politicians continue to insinuate in our minds that these massive centers are just 15-minute cities, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Toronto, etc. If you say that all of those cities really are just 15-minute cities, 15-minute districts in this massive metropolitan, what you do as a politician is Tell the individual, whether he knows it or not, that he never needs to leave his 15-minute jurisdiction. What I'm saying is, suppose that you were to lock down again. Suppose the nation were to lock down again and put restrictions on all. If the populace has already agreed and accepted that cities are really just 15-minute cities, then with what power or leverage will you or I or another individual living in the city be able to say, I want to leave my 15-minute district. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because what a politician will be able to say is, or a, um, a counselor or whoever will be able to say is, well, you don't need to. You have all your amenities right here. We've designed the city to be a 15-minute city. You don't right. have to leave your jurisdiction because you have a hospital, you have a grocery store, you have a gas station, you have this and that. And there's really nothing for you outside of your little pocket. What you therefore can do is emulate what Australia did during the lockdowns, which was, as you remember, they locked their citizens within a five kilometer radius of their home for however mm-hmm. long that was. Right. And so you can do, you could just as easily do that again. If the citizens agree and accept that massive metropolitans are really just 15 minute cities, there'll be no need to leave your 15 minute district. There'll be no need to travel beyond it. There's no reason for that because all of your amenities are right here. And so what they can do is lock you down indefinitely without uh, having you without giving you any justification other than Mm. your rights and freedoms for leaving. And when Mm. you try to argue for leaving on the grounds of rights and freedoms, the politician will simply reply, this isn't about rights and freedoms at all. It's about Mm -hmm. safety or security or health. And in that instance, your rights and freedoms are suspended for the good of the nation. And so your arguments are therefore illegitimate. So, Tanner, could it be, uh, putting on our tinfoil hats for a moment, because we're both Albertans, could could it be that the COVID-19 lockdowns, which 
were recently described by no less than the Fraser Institute, Douglas Allen report as the worst public policy in history. Could it be that these lockdowns were a trial run for something bigger in terms of restriction of liberty? And that is the never ending climate crisis. Right. Uh, so that we're, we're all, we all have to be, uh, live, live in fear of the sun monster, the very thing that provides life on this planet. And all we have to live in fear of the sun and we have to adjust all of our, um, everything that we do according to this. But my question is about that is, and my, my probably question to that is, why does this always come down to restriction of liberty? Why is it so mm. essential that in order to save the planet, we have to sacrifice our liberty? Could you connect those dots for us? Right. That is an excellent question. And one which <laughs> would, be, would be wise for every Canadian and American and anyone around the world to ask all of their politicians, because it's true. People think it's coincidental that every time you enact a new climate policy, it's socialist or <laughs> pseudo-socialist. You know, there should be some, there should be some um, connection that people should be able to almost instantly make whenever you see a new restriction. You're right. Uh, no more combustion vehicles. No more drilling for oil and gas. It always comes from a central authority that wants to decide how the market is supposed to be run in the name of saving the climate. That's it's it, there's a clear and present distinction. And I think it would be this. Again, you have all of these individuals in power who are power hungry and want as much power as possible. The way to guarantee that is to centralize the power, i.e. be a socialist. You start controlling markets. You control the way people live. You start handing out how much how many credits they can have for good X or how many coupons they can have for good Y you decide to fix how much of good X the society is going to produce. And it practically turns you, the central planner, the politician, into an all-powerful, omnicompetent entity. And people have to bow to you. They have to be beholden to you. Because if they don't, then they're you know, forced off their ration or who knows what might happen. Right. Right? But you look at the, right. the societies of past. And, mm -hmm. and the socialist societies have passed, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So climate change, because it's so abstract, gives those politicians an ability to <laughs> exercise that sort of control without being challenged as they would be if they used a different avenue. Here's what I mean. We saw this with COVID too, with the lockdowns. Suppose that um, you or I or someone else tried to argue against the lockdowns. And maybe you're not as good of an example because you're a lawyer. But suppose that just a, you know, a common man, uh, an oil rigger, uh, a grocery clerk, whatever, tried to argue against the lockdowns when they were in full force. What was the response he received? Well, he was told that, one, you're not an immunologist. You're not a mm -hmm. doctor. You don't have expertise in um viruses or in vaccines and all of these things and so for you to try and argue against lockdowns is simply absurd because you have no idea about the science of the matter you're not a scientist you're not a doctor you're, you don't have a clue about medicine and so who are you to tell the experts how to run the province so you see if you and i argue against something on the grounds of morals and rights and freedoms we're able to do so precisely because we're humans. 
And as right. human beings, we understand morals because it affects all of us and it's intrinsic in all of us. But science is different. And lockdowns, for example, are different because I'm not studied in immunology or I'm not studied in the history of virus or I'm not studied in the history of medicine or what might have you. And so what it enabled bureaucrats to do when we decided to argue against lockdowns is, as I mentioned, was say, this isn't about rights or freedoms at all. This is only about the science. This is only about health and safety. And as a consequence, your arguments have absolutely no bearing on the situation at hand. And so go back to your home and, and wait until the experts tell you it's safe to leave. Now, right. you can do the same thing with climate. You can say you're not a climate scientist. You have no idea about the environment. You don't understand what a cumulonimbus cloud is. You don't know uh, what the proper temperature of the earth should be. And so who are you to tell us that, for example, climate lockdowns are immoral? You don't have a clue about safety. You don't know what the earth is going to be like in 10 years if we don't do this. You don't know all of these things because you're not a scientist. Mm -hmm. And so you have to let us take control because we're the scientists. We're the bureaucracy that, un that, um, we're the bureaucracy that always interacts with the experts. And so you have to give us more power. So I would argue that link then is because we're not climate scientists, because we're not environmentalists, Government will argue we don't have a right to talk about whether or not we should, for example, lock down in the name of the climate change. Only those who are studied in environmentalism, who also tend to be radically left, will have the expertise to tell mm -hmm. us we're free mm -hmm. to leave our homes. Right. And so we're going to have to then listen to government. It's just an right. avenue for, to give them more power. Right. And who are we to question the estimable Greta Thunberg? Right, of course. Yes. Um, this reminds me of um, when I was questioning uh, our former chief medical officer of health, now the deputy minister in British Columbia, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. And uh, you'll remember this as an Albertan. She used to give daily press mm -hmm. conferences. Mm -hmm. And um, I read through the transcripts of over 400 of them. And in every single one, she talked about something called the new normal, mm. which is almost like a grooming uh yeah. process that kind yeah. of ties into what you were saying. The other thing that isn't talked about enough is how profitable this whole green scam is. Uh, I was reading, for example, that um, there are roughly 12 and a half billion, that's billion automobiles mm -hmm. in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Only about 1% of them are electrical. Mm -hmm. And that means that for people like Elon Musk, they get to replace 99% of the world's automobiles. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like mm -hmm. that that's part of this, isn't it? That there's so much money in this whole green scam for certain people. Of course, it's going to be built on the backs of the misery of uh, of the regular Joes, but there's a great deal of money in this in this in this whole green so-called green economy, isn't there, Tanner? Yes. Oh, absolutely. When you listen to free market economists, you have to listen carefully because they never say they're pro business. Because being pro-business is different than being pro-free market. It really? tends to okay. be that massive business gets involved with government right. and creates a sort of unholy marriage where these powerful individuals in business by manipulating... Arguably, arguably fascist. <laughs> yes, precisely. Exactly. And so I would, would completely agree that you're seeing that right now. Think about the automobile. Think about the, start the, the creation of the consumable automobile that was available for everyone right before that time you had people uh driving horses and buggies you know and and uh, moving around the countryside with 
with a couple of quarter horses or what might have you. Then all of a sudden, Henry Ford comes out with this automobile that's mainstream and anyone can purchase it. It's cheap compared to other things. It's reliable or it's becoming reliable. And it's a more efficient mode of transport than a horse and and a wagon or something. You or the government didn't have to force the society to transfer over to the automobile. People knew it was the right thing to do because as self-interested, smart, rational individuals, they decided for themselves that the automobile was more efficient than a horse and and a wagon. It was a better purchase to make. And so the society over a period of how many years transformed or translated to a society from that used to drive horses to now uh, to a society that then drove automobiles. Now, the same isn't true today. If green energy or if green automobiles, green cars, really were superior to oil and gas, then you would see the society shift on their own. You would see people purchase those new vehicles without any subsidy or help from government. Because they wouldn't need to. The rational mind would say, actually, it's more efficient, it's more cost effective, it's more practical, whatever it might be, for me to get an electric vehicle. And so I'm going to transition away from that, uh, the combustion vehicle, and purchase an electric one. Now, of course, that's not happening. And so what government's doing instead is they're banning combustion vehicles by X date. They're restricting our consumption of oil and gas by X percent. They're telling us that by this year or certain what whatever year it is, we're going to have um, an X percentage of vehicles in the nation be electric. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I, I think so it's 2020, 2025 right. is the date. Yes, that's been yes right. And then by 2030, 2050, et cetera. So what you have then is government steering the society in the direction they want it to go. They're acting like central planners because the free market on its own, meaning the billions of individuals like you and me who make rational decisions in the central planner's mind, aren't smart enough to transition for themselves. And so these central planners, these (laughs) 10 individuals at the top, who I guess are smarter than all of us, decide to do it for us and make us buy these vehicles um, in lieu of our own free choice. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the difference between Mm -hmm. the old markets and what we have right now. And so like you said, you have self-interested business owners who know that they can become rich beyond their wildest dreams. And they're working with government to do so. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, I think for me causes the most concern, and uh, there are many things that cause me to question the whole um, carbon dioxide uh, killer theory, but uh, the people who, the sort of knowledge base of, of people who pervade this theory, they never look at the advantages of having more carbon dioxide. And uh, we had Dr. Patrick Moore on this program, um, formerly of Greenpeace, and he talks about this in, in his books and his writings. Uh, for example, if um, one example is if the Earth warmed up uh, roughly three and a half degrees, that uh, the, you know the you know the, the wheat fields of Manitoba and Saskatchewan and Alberta would be as fertile as what it presently exists in in Missouri. We could grow bananas in the southern part of the United States. Uh, we could be growing food in what is now the Arctic. So there are benefits, but these are never these are never talked about. We only talk about the catastrophes. The other thing that's ignored is that these products that we derive from oil and gas, over six thousand of them, 
are actually saving lives. They're actually saving human life from, from weather catastrophe because we can build things, we can design things, we have technology that, is, uh, that has really caused the loss of life due to weather events to be a mere fraction of what they were 100 or 200 years ago. Why are why are the people who purvey these theories um, not telling the truth about the benefits of well? It seems to me if we're going to have a proper cost benefit analysis, the way any good economist would do, we should be looking at both sides of the question, shouldn't we, Tanner? Right. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I would say the reason that the proponents of this eco radicalism don't publicly announce or provide both sides of the story is because like anyone else who wants to or like anyone else who lies or doesn't speak the entire truth it's because they have some ulterior purpose or motive that they believe furthers their self-interest so a child who lies to his mother does so because perhaps he's scared of being disciplined for whatever action he committed and perhaps an eco-radical who decides to neglect one side of the argument with regards to climate science does so because either they're scared of what they're going to find or they're concerned that they will see um, the science says this and that that directly contradicts their view and therefore forces them to relinquish their power that they've otherwise acquired and so on. Um, you're right. You would need, you, do, you do need to do a proper cost-benefit analysis. Now, of course, I'm not a climate scientist, but what my concern with climate science is is that it's so heavily politicized. That to mm -hmm. me is the greatest red flag. It's yeah. a science that, oh, when you read the articles, you're just, you don't know what's been politicized and what hasn't been because we know that politicians are using it for their own objectives and aims. That is self-evident. And so when you hear them talk about this new study or that new study or this new research um, breakthrough, in development who knows what you know you, we're so concerned and i think rightfully so that the science is politicized to such a point where you can barely call it a science at all and that's true for all sciences that granted that politicians want to uh use for their use for their control use for their objectives but because mm -hmm. they rely so heavily on climate science i think it makes the problem so much more prevalent and dangerous mm -hmm. And as such, we're so much more skeptical and leery about it. Not only so, but when you read, like you mentioned, Fossil Future, um, mm -hmm. Epstein's book, at the start right. of it, I know he discusses how um, the predictions, the dire predictions of the catastrophes that were coming in years past, none of them have come true. And so the reliability right. of the science, um, at least in certain aspects, is dubious. Right. We had um, Dr. Robert Malone on this program recently, and he described... Canada as a World Economic Forum client state. I want to sort of extrapolate this out and take a broader view of just transition and what's happening in our country. And I know you have been involved with the Alberta Prosperity Project, and uh, you've been an active speaker at events and uh, things of that nature. Can you talk about uh, just transition and the World Economic Forum in the context of Alberta's struggle uh, to to restore its sovereignty within confederation and, ah. and what the way forward is for for the country as you see it that's a good question you're right as a consequence of the way that confederation has been constructed and as a consequence of the current 
political climate, the federal political climate, and who they're involved with, it makes it impossible for Alberta to pursue its objectives and its aims as it wants to. You know, when we talk about how the structure of Confederation is um, puts Alberta at a disadvantage, that's, you know, that's not even to be angry about it. It's not to be riled up about. It's just a consequence of the way the system was set up. You have a the vast majority of Canadians live in the East, live in Ontario and Quebec and so on. Uh, you have a, um, as a consequence of that, you have a stronger distribution of politicians in the East who also have to serve the interests of the East in order to win elections. There's nothing inherently immoral about that. It's just a consequence of the way Confederation was constructed. Now, of course, because people are different and because regions are different, the objectives or the desires of the East often aren't, at least in the heavily populated centers, often aren't congruent with, say, the objectives of Alberta or Saskatchewan or those other provinces in the West. So you have this persistent dichotomy of, you know, East, I hate to say East versus West because it's really not, but it's really, it's, it's more accurate to say um, political <laughs> um, mugwumpery in Ottawa <laughs> versus, versus what you have here in, in the West. It's actually not people against people. It's more politicians against, against a specific group of people. And I think for the politicians that actually works to their advantage because the system is always kept in such a state of disarray that um, you have two or more people pulling in opposite directions. And so it means they go nowhere. You know, suppose that you have a circular, a rope, and you tie it in a circle, a big circle, right. and you take six people. And like a noose? Like, like an, yeah, almost, exactly. And you, and you, it's like a big hula hoop. And you take six people and you, you know, put them at one point around the circle. And at your command, they all start to pull. You know, you say pull. And each one is pulling in their own direction. Well, for the most part, what you'll notice is that the circle doesn't really move at all. Because you have all of these individuals pulling in different directions, it means that the circle stays in one fixed location. The people don't really move. If they were all moving in one direction, you could move very quickly. You could move that hula hoop, that circle right across the field in a heartbeat. But because each individual is pulling in a different direction, they don't move. Now, the same, Mm -hmm. I would argue, is true for the political climate. Mm -hmm. If you have... Or if you create a situation where the citizens of your country, all of them are pulling in different directions, it makes it so difficult for them to affect any real change at all. They hardly move because they're so busy fighting with each other that it means that you can basically keep the system stable as it is, which tends to mean a liberal government because they're centrist and they, mm-hmm. well, they claim to be centrist. I don't believe they are, but their public claim is they're centrist and, you know, they're moderates and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so the system never really moves, never really changes. And so when Trudeau, for example, says that Canada isn't broken, even though the majority of Canadians just today said it was, when Trudeau says that Canada isn't broken, for him, it actually isn't. That's true because he needs it in that state of disarray right. in order to guarantee or at least dramatically increase his chances of being reelected because he's right. this man in the middle. You would maybe he's again, mm-hmm. he's not, but he publicly portrays himself to be uh, this man in the middle. Right. So with APP, and I still believe this to be true. The desire is the way you save Canada is by being independent from the federal government. 
that that I have a strong conviction about that because, for example, you look at Scripture. When God, for you know, told Moses to go and rescue the Israelites, it wasn't go and rescue the Israelites and then again bow to Pharaoh. It was rescue the Israelites and leave. And people from Egypt who also recognized the wrongdoing of Pharaoh could go with you. That was clear, you know, but it wasn't stay in the situation you're in. It was prepare an exodus, Mm -hmm. leave, and then other nations around you or other provinces will see what sort of freedom and prosperity and justice and morality, uh, you know, rises up as a consequence of that new freedom, of that new um, independence. And so Mm. the idea is, okay, so if one province can show the rest of Canada, and for that matter, the rest of the world, what independence from the WEF, from the federal government, from uh, these neo-socialist policies looks like, then I would be fully confident that other provinces would follow as well. And then you could reconvene, and, and now that's further down the road, but you could reconvene and create something new, something much freer than what we have currently. That mm-hmm. was, that's the idea. I, I would be, I would be fully in favor of it raining frogs on Ottawa, were it not for the fact <laughs> that I know that Trudeau and company would, would, would spin that as a sure sign of climate catastrophe. Sure, of course. Um, yeah. But let's talk about Trudeau and some of these uh, economic policies, these, these disastrous economic policies that you've talked about on your podcast. You know, the housing crisis, um, inflation, um, new carbon taxes. Um, is, there, is there a solution? Uh, is there a way forward? How do, how do, we, how do Canadians, everyday Canadians and Albertans, um, deal with all of this? And most importantly, um, putting on your economist hat, um, are the are the rumblings that we are on our way to a severe recession? Uh, are are they? Is there reason to to think that they are correct? Right. Or, or do the signs point to that? Well, so your first question, I think the way out of it, honestly, is simply to reverse the policies. Now, mm-hmm. that's easier said than done because you have powerful politicians, powerful bureaucrats who increase their power the more regulation is shouldered onto the backs of Canadians. And so it makes it very difficult to repeal a law or repeal a new tax law or a new policy once it's been imposed. That's the deadly danger of increasing the size of government. To take an example, if it were up to me, if you had to have tax, ideally you don't, but if you did, why not have it to be a one or two page document that there's a flat tax, a kid in grade 10 can read it, and you don't need, you know, all of this accounting in order to in order to complete your taxes but that's precisely the problem is that if you did such a thing or tried to if you tried to propose such a change you would have tax accountants and lawyers and so on um upset because it would mean a loss of their business and so they would lobby and probably you wouldn't see a change the same is true with carbon tax the same is true with um you know high inflationary policies um housing and so on the more power the federal government has the harder it is for them to let it go or to to relinquish it back to the people where where it belongs diluted and distributed among the masses now um with regards to your second point which i can't remember what it was what was your it was are, do you think we're on the road to a recession oh, in yes with regards to recession oh i think we're already there 
Um, yeah, I think we're already in recession. You look at just how much even power has risen. You look at prices, groceries continue to rise. You see, well, you know, I don't know a single person who says I'm better off this year than I was last year or two years ago or three years ago, even though we went through a lockdown. I don't know anyone. And the problem with, again, with economic reporting, like climate science is that it's heavily politicized. So to take an example, you can look at the CPI, what we use to calculate inflation or what bureaucrats use to calculate inflation. The problem with it is like for one, it doesn't, it doesn't account for the price of homes, housing. Um, secondly, it only accounts for actual prices of goods, which can change for a variety of reasons, not just inflation, right? If, if instead you had a calculator that actually looked at how much the money supply had increased over a specific period of time, that's an inflation calculator. What the CPI is, what what governments always talk about, is a price inflation calculator. And it looks at how prices have changed. But again, changes in price and inflation are different things, right? Prices rise in the economy as a consequence of inflation, but they're Mm. not classically the same. And you have to make that distinction. So when we hear that um, we're perhaps approaching a recession, I would argue we're already there. It's just that if you as a government or a media company or whatever, what might have you decide to objectively state that we are in recession, even though when you look at the numbers, we're not classically in a recession, what you do, of course, is scare investors. You um, induce them to perhaps take actions that would cause panic in the market. Who knows? There's a lot of uncertainty. And so you're nervous about it and you try to play things off as coolly as possible it's the same with inflation right mm-hmm. if you if you underreport inflation as i argued as as i argue we did and probably continue to do you make the market seem more stable than it actually is even though it really wasn't you know if you actually reported if you took into the, for example the cost of housing into the calculations for inflation for price inflation and you reported maybe a more accurate number than what we were than what we than what was being reported over the last two or three years, you probably would have seen a lot more panic because inflation would have seen would have been seen to have been higher than what it was. And people would have reacted perhaps more spontaneously than what they did. Governments don't like that because it introduces uncertainty and uncertainty means uncertainty with regards to their power. And so they try to keep things as cool as possible and keep everything as um, everything simmering. Nothing, nothing mm. boiling, just, you know, let it simmer. And so, yeah, I would argue we're already there, um, especially when you just talk to your neighbor on the street and he's hurting, his family's hurting. They're working a lot of jobs. If they can find jobs, they're trying to make ends meet. They're cutting out vacations and so on to try and navigate this period of time. And yeah, I think it's, it's simply a, a matter of what's real versus what's being reported. Mm. Is it fair to opine that this this assault on the Canadian economy is being done deliberately? For example, uh, the Prime Minister recently told Germany and Japan to talk to the hand after they said that they were quite interested in purchasing um, energy from Canada, liquefied natural gas. Um, These are... These are friendly countries to Canada. These are allies. These are trading partners. Um, and, and the cost of that to Canadians, especially to Western Canada, is huge. It's enormous. It's in the billions of dollars. 
Um, is it fair to say that this is being done on purpose, that there's a deliberate agenda to destroy the Canadian economy, or is that a bridge too far? No, I'd absolutely agree with you that this is deliberate because you can't. <laughs> I don't think you can actually possess mental capacity or function and state that these policies are are objectively working. Because mm -hmm. when you look at the data, it's clear that they're not. So I don't understand. I don't think it's possible to say, yes, these policies are working for the benefits of Canadians. When you look at, for example, your neighbor, when you look at the state of Canada, when you look at how high the cost of groceries are, when you look at factor X, Y, Z, it's impossible to state that what Mr. Trudeau's done over the last how many years has been for the economic benefit of Canadians. Now, you can say with mental capacity that the economic policies instituted for by government, by the federal government, are working if and only if their purpose is to decimate the nation. And then, and then they're mm -hmm. brilliant. Then the policies <laughs> make perfect and total sense. That's the only way I can, can make sense of what they're doing. How can you impose a carbon tax at a time like this? Look at the cost of power. It's unbelievable on its own, let alone then when you add all of these egregious taxes. And so how can you say that's for the betterment of Albertans or Canadians? Mm -hmm. How can you say, well, it's, it's better because they're turning their house, their homes down to 17 or 18. People are still heating their homes. They have to, lest their pipes freeze. So that sort of thing is completely incomprehensible. But when you look at it from an, an angle of actually the federal government wants you and I to feel a pinch, a very strong pinch, a crush, in order that we might go to them and ask for help, then it makes sense. If you have a child who's hurting, he goes to you for help. He knows that you, you know, he needs help, whether it's a cut or a scrape or what might have you, a broken bone. He runs to you, he needs help, and you're able to assist him, right, in that, in that capacity. And he basically relinquishes himself over to you. He puts himself into your care because he knows that you'll make him better. Well, you can argue the same thing is happening with the federal government, right? If you and I are hurting, if we're economically in trouble, if we're financially desperate, who else do we turn to but government? Even though in the long run, we know they won't help us, right now the temptation to feed our family, which is a noble temptation, is too um, drastic to bear. And so we decide in an act of desperation to run towards government and say, I need help. And then, you know, be able to provide for, for our families. So I think this economic, these economic disasters are deliberate. They're not accidental. Uh, the liberal government doesn't do things by mistake. You know, they don't, they're calculated in their moves and it's causing the brunt of Canadians, the major lots of Canadians to um, seriously consider relinquishing a portion of their freedom in order to you know, make it to next month. Tanner, I'm interested to get your take on how the the evident assault upon Christianity in this country fits into this whole picture. Um, historically, at least in the West, uh, I think it's fair to say, and history will show this, that Christianity has been the most tolerant uh, religion of, of of all other religions, um, and yet, uh, and in, in places like Canada and the United States. Other religions, people of other faiths are allowed to come here and their their right to practice their faith is actually legally protected. 
and culturally, for the most part, respected. And yet in this country, we've seen um, in recent years an attack upon Christmas, uh, Easter, celebration of the, these essential um, Christian uh, rites, and, and also um, a fundamental attack upon churches. Churches, Christian churches are being burned all the time in this country. Um, Christianity, the, the Christian faith is being attacked. I'll give you one example. Um, uh, there was a, uh, recently, I believe in British Columbia, there was a, an individual who was trained at, at a Christian law school, uh, was, was denied, um, entry into the Law Society of British Columbia. Um, and, uh, and so that would not occur. I, I would argue a situation if that person had come from a country and been trained in a country that, uh, was predominantly Islamic or Hindu or, or otherwise. And then we have most recently the prime minister has essentially enshrined Islamophobia and created a ministry and uh, put in place a person who is hostile towards uh, towards Christianity. What's going on in this country? What what is this attack on Christianity? And how does it fit into the overall agenda of the liberal government? Right, it's a good question. We live in a modern society where men want to do things because they do. When you look, for example, at the universities or you travel to university, it will take you all of five minutes to discover a student or uh, a radical ideologue proclaiming that he's going to do something because I am who I am. So, for example, you can take gender transition, for example. A man wants to transition to a female. He says, I am who I am. And I want to express myself. I want to be myself. Such a peculiar statement, right? Because right after he says, I want to be myself, he does away with himself and he decides to be someone else entirely. He does away with his creation, his gender, his masculinity, and becomes someone totally different. He transforms into someone totally new. So obviously he doesn't want to be himself because if he did, he would still be masculine. Now, what I mean by that is we live in a society today where no one wants to be restricted with anything. We right. live in a society where, again, I want to do something because I want to do it. And that's that. I am who I am. I'm, it's justified because I said it's justified. Now, that stands directly in the face of Christ. This idea mm -hmm. of I am who I am, that extends to government. It starts young. It goes to university. It goes to the real world. And then it goes to government. Or perhaps it's from the top down. At any rate, when politicians instituted lockdowns, we're staying safe because I am who I am, was the answer, right? Why are we locking down? Because I said so, was, <laughs> was what they said. Now, again, Christ stands in the face of that mm -hmm. because he's a restriction. He's one who says, if you really want to be free, you have to have restrictions on that freedom. If you really want to exercise your liberty, you have to have a law, an objective standard that's, that keeps you from trespassing beyond right. the bounds of your humanity. So mm -hmm. think of a massive, um, speaking of Chesterton, he used this example. Think of a massive disc floating 10,000 feet in the air and you drop 20 children onto the disc and it's a field. And so you say, okay, go play a game of soccer. 
Now, if there were no borders around that massive disc, you wouldn't find kids playing soccer. You would find them after you came back an hour later, right? All huddled together in the middle of the field, scared to say run too far and then run off the edge of the the disc and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. So what you do then is you build a fence. You build a huge fence. You build an opaque wall for that matter. So that not only can the children not run over the ledge, they can't even see over the ledge. They don't really know that there's something perilous awaiting them over the ledge. Well, then they start to play soccer. Then they play the game as it's meant to be played because now they have a restriction on their freedom. They're bounded. And as a consequence, they can enjoy soccer as it's meant to be enjoyed. So all you have to do then is take those walls and apply them to us using the law. So one law is thou shall not steal, thou shall not lie, thou shall not covet, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't have those laws, if you reject them, then you begin to trespass beyond your humanity. That law is a bounds. It separates us from mere animality or mere animal. Mm -hmm. And so we need it to be human. Now, again, politicians and radicals don't like that because as far as they're concerned, it's a restriction. It's a restriction Mm -hmm. on their freedom. And to be restricted in this day and age is to be oppressed. And so that simply can't occur. You have to knock down those barriers and those boundaries in order to live freely as humans are meant to live. When in reality, if you do so, you lose your humanity. Now, the other thing I would say about Christ and why politicians and radicals despise him is because he makes this claim that no one else has ever made, which is I am truth, right? It's one thing to say I have the truth. It's one thing to say. Well, Fauci uh, did say he's science. Well, yes, I suppose he did. That's right. And we, but again, when we knew it instantly that right. it was a radical, crazy statement. Right. You know, he's, you're right. It's like um, Star Wars. I am the Senate, mm-hmm. right? I am the yeah. science. It's like, well, mm-hmm. prove it. And you can't, yeah. right? When Christ says, I am the truth, the difference between Christ and Fauci is that Christ rose from the dead. <laughs> yes. Prove that it was so. That's and one so, difference. <laughs> yeah, that's one one difference, right? That's one drastic difference. There's probably more that I can think of, but there's one drastic difference. And so when Christ says, I am the truth, it means Fauci isn't the science. Right. It means that Trudeau isn't the truth. It means all of these things that politicians in power hate. And so they have to try and exercise Christ from the nation. Brilliant, brilliant. No, that what you described about, for example, the Ten Commandments is really, really interesting. It reminds me of something that I read in a book by Dennis Prager uh, called The Rational Bible, mm. where he sen- essentially says that these rules, these Ten Commandments, basically they were given to, to us by God so that to the extent that we can follow them, we are free. We are, mm-hmm. we are free of sin. Of course, yes. that's picked up by Christ in the New Testament. And mm-hmm. he gives us the new, you know, the new commandment, mm-hmm. um, which is much more uh, meaningful mm-hmm. because it's connected to, to love and eternal life. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, that's fascinating. The abs- how the absence of rules is actually a form of slavery. Yes. Because you're enslaved to sin, right? Yes, yeah. right. yes precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's a, This is... This has been just a wonderful, brilliant conversation, Tanner. I've enjoyed so much talking with you and oh. uh, sort of mining some of your best ideas. Um, I want to turn now to something we call the reading list, and we're going to feature um, your book, the one you published in 2020 mm-hmm. uh, on our list. It's called True Christianity. Well, do you want to tell us about it sure. since you're here? Tell sure. us about well, True Christianity. What, the honest truth is, so I had just, I started writing it in university, and when I graduated from university, it was, was the moment that 
all of the lockdowns and so on started. And so no one was doing anything for a couple of weeks, like everyone else in the nation. And so I figured, why not uh, try and complete this book as quickly as possible? All it really was or is, is an introductory treatise to my Christian faith, why I, why I believe what I do, why I think it's logical, um, and so on. And it was, it's meant to be just an introduction into Christianity as a whole. Of course, it's not mere Christianity. It's not any of those classics, but it's Mm -hmm. something that, um, a newly graduated college student, a university student wrote after having navigated university and, and, after having seen all that was taught in university, what individuals in the schools think, what ideologues think in the in the universities, and so on, and so it just goes step by step, you know, starting from creation, then to the fall, and the idea of the law. You were talking about the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. and the problems of sin, and and of course the resurrection and all of these things. It just goes through the very basics, the very fundamentals of Christian faith. Sounds like an excellent book. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to read it. Oh well, thank you. Um, the the second book that I have uh, is from an author we've talked about, um, Alex Epstein. It's mm. called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. It's a book that he wrote uh, about nine years ago, and I guess you could call it the prequel to the book that we were talking about, Fossil Future. But The Moral Case for fo- for Fossil Fuels essentially talks about in more depth some of the things that you've been discussing. That is the all the benefits that are not talked about by climate alarmists of fossil fuels and why they are so essential to uh, human flourishing. And what's kind of fascinating about Alex Epstein is that he's not a scientist, he's not an economist, he's actually he's actually a, a philosopher. And so when you when you read uh, what he writes, um, it has a different sort of uh, approach to it uh, in terms of. Uh, of, of a philosophical approach to the whole idea in terms of mm-hmm. testing ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you say this, well, if we apply, you know, philosophical principles to that, can that be proven according to, uh, you know, a philosophical logic, uh, uh, you know, applied logic, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting way of looking at it. And I think that um, speaks to a lot of people who maybe don't understand science or, or, or don't trust it. Of course, there's many more today that don't trust science after COVID. Uh, the next book is an interesting one by um, Barrick Metaxas. He's written a number of wonderful books. I, I'm sure Tanner's familiar with them. This one was written um, a few years ago, and he asked the question, is atheism dead? And uh, he asks uh, in an entertaining, uh, impressively wide-ranging and decidedly provocative answer to that famous 1966 time cover that itself asked, is God dead? Uh, what uh, Metaxas does is he starts to ask the question, well, is this movement to destroy God, is it failing? Are the signs that uh, that atheism uh, uh, is actually um, is implausible and intellectually sloppy and de- demonstrably ridiculous? Um, and uh, he says perhaps the only unanswered question on the subject is why we couldn't see this sooner, how embarrassed we should be about it. So um, uh, I've recently read that book, and I highly recommend it. The last one is kind of a fun book. It's called uh, Why Trudeau is a Great Leader uh, and Deserves Respect. And uh, the fascinating thing about this book is uh, it won't take you very long to read it Uh, because uh. it's blank. It's blank. (laughs) 
So, Tanner, uh, why don't you, um, can you make a couple of recommendations, uh, starting with perhaps telling us about the new book that you're working on? Ah, well, you're always working. I have something in the works, and it's um, it's centered on progressivism, what we were talking about today. And it's still in the early stages, but we're working as hard as we can. Um, what it, I think the, the main, not I think, the main theme of the book is Here's what progressivism says. Here's the issues with it. And everything wraps up with Christ. And so mm-hmm. that's honestly the amount of details I have at the moment. But it's it's exciting. We're rough drafts, editing, all that jazz, all that fun stuff. Um, yeah, it'll be fun. We're going to work as hard as we can and try and get it out published as soon as possible. For Fantastic. actual recommendations, well, the first one I would give is actually is we were talking about G.K. Chesterton. He has a book called Orthodoxy. Right. And it's brilliant. I know a lot of individuals like C.S. Lewis, and Lewis is great. Mm -hmm. When you read Chesterton, you see where Lewis was influenced from. So Chesterton Mm -hmm. was one of Lewis's Lewis's greatest influences. Right. Yeah. Um, Lewis was influenced by Chesterton. And you can see that manifest in Chesterton's writing. You can see Lewis's style, his arguments, manifested in Chesterton's original works. And mm-hmm. so Orthodoxy is this book. It's brilliant. Um, and it's it's a discussion of, um, it's an apologetic work about Christianity. How It's how Chesterton came to faith. And the arguments are nuanced, some of them, but they're brilliant. Really, mm-hmm. really, it's an excellent book. And then the second, uh, the second work I would, I would have your audience consider is Abolition of Man. I think mm. Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton and Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis read together are a beautiful harmony because that discussion we had about law at the end, how we need boundary, is present both in Orthodoxy, but also more prominently in Abolition of Man. That's almost, that's the theme of the third chapter, really, of Abolition of Man, is if you have no law, no foundation, um, you're blind, you're in big trouble. Right. There's a real right. issue. And so um, Abolition's also, it's a brilliant book. It's a series of lectures that C.S. Lewis gave at Oxford. It's just three chapters long. The first one has to deal with how the corruption of language means the corruption of thought, which I think is brilliant. The That's second, certainly prevalent today. So prevalent, it? so prevalent. The second chapter has to do with um, a foundational law. Lewis calls it the Tao, but it's, it's Ten Commandments and so on. Right. And then the third argument or the third chapter is also so prevalent for today because it talks about how um, men and women in power, like Trudeau, can use technology either for good or for surgical evil. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we're seeing now with digitalization. And then Lewis talks about how that leads to the abolition of man. So it's a great Interesting. Point. Well, I hope that you'll find a way to weave some of that into your new book. Oh, we'll see. We'll uh, <laughs> but anyway, Tanner, uh, we're so grateful for this hour or so with you. Uh, it's wonderful to to listen to you and, and get your insight into the many things that are going on in our country. And also to to be exposed to someone who is educated, but, uh, but also is, their education is informed by their faith and that you profess that. Um, it's, it really is, uh, really is inspirational. So oh. thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Grey Matter. It's been, uh, just a lovely uh, pleasure to sit down with you and have this conversation. 
Oh, well, thank you. It's been my, this was a lot of fun. It's always fun talking to you. 